Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today's episode of the show was recorded at the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival in front of a live audience. I'm delighted to introduce you to Melvin Bragg. He's a broadcaster, author and a household name in the UK. Best known for his work with ITV as editor and presenter of The South Bank Show and for the BBC Radio 4's In Our Time, which has run to over 900 broadcast editions and is a popular podcast. He's written over 30 books during his 60-year career. A champion of arts and culture, he's won countless literary, film and television awards and from 1999 until 2017, he held the position of Chancellor at the University of Leeds. I wrote this book now, which is to say two and odd years ago, under rather dramatic circumstances, and it's a bit embarrassing, but no point in coming to these festivals unless you try to say something truthful. I've been very, very ill, and I, I, I was until a year or two ago, seriously ill and dangerously ill once or twice. And then lockdown came along, and I seriously sat and thought, I've got about one more book left. If I really dig in, I can do one more book, and what should it be? And I thought, I know what it is. It's a compound book. It starts in 1945, when I was six, and my father came back to Wickton, the town in which I was born, which I'll come back to in a minute, from the war, and ends when I'm about eight. I feel as if I'm in hospital. Uh, <laughs> uh, and these things I'm here make me think I feel like I'm Madonna, so it's a very difficult position. <laughs> I mean, a very difficult situation. <laughs> and ends in, uh, when I'm about 18 and I go to university. That, that passage of time, which, oddly enough, was also a hinge period in English life, it seems to me. I thought I want to do this. I couldn't... I didn't want to research it like I did with the book about the history of language and so on. I didn't have the energy. But the odd thing is that when I said I will just write about that period from what I most keenly remember, and the most curious thing, and I bet many of you have discovered this as well, it's like the little Dutch boy with the finger in the dam. When he takes the finger out, the dam goes Whoosh. And I took out, and I started to think about my past intensely, and there was masses of it there. There was an enormous amount there. And so I wanted this chronicle. You know, if, if in 300 years' time, the Chinese take over Cumberland, they might dig it up and say, oh, that's what they were like. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe better go back to those days. Um, so I wanted it to be a chronicle, but a chronicle about my life, but about my parents' life, uh, and about the town, and about my friends, but not a sociology. I wasn't making great sociological points, and it's not a misery memoir. It came from, I'll talk about the class if you want, but it's not a misery memoir. It's a story of a, it's a buoyancy, if I may use <laughs> a buoyancy of this boy who I, in my life, I have, uh, as my youth, which... When you read it now, you think, oh, God, how awful it was. It didn't seem awful at all. There's not... I was rich in everything that mattered. Absolutely everything that matters in life. Good parents, good friends. And I'll come back to town in a second, as I keep saying. So I started to do it. And I found out there's one section I wrote seven times, brought in my girlfriend, my first girlfriend, whom I wanted to marry. I was just prevented from doing it when I was 17 or 18, which I thought was very unfair. And uh, a lot it brings in. And it brings in a life that's sort of gone. I don't like to say it, was go it wasn't golden, but it was, a, it was a life. What distinguished it was that it was a small town, 5,000 people. But what distinguished it, it came at a time when this country had been in two massive world wars. 
and in a way prevailed in both, at great cost to itself, at great cost to itself, massive cost in men, in deaths, in wounds, in treasure, in positioning, and all the rest of it. And it had come through. And that poem by dear Florence, you remember, Song of a Man Who Has Come Through. It had come through. And in the late 40s, after war, it was resetting itself, and resetting itself in a quite a different way, it seemed to me, although maintaining the integrity of the town. And so I thought, there's, there's something there, not more than something there, there's everything there, if I do it properly. And so I tried to do it properly, and uh, there it is. It was <laughs> almost like a last will and testament, in a way. This is what it was like at a crucial period in my life, and I think, although I don't dwell on this, crucial period in this country's life, crucial seminal period in this country's life, where we changed, we, we reset ourselves in all sorts of ways, minor and major. And looking back on it, I think the grandeur of it, the awe in which I hold those people in that town of 5,000 people, 12 places of worship, 5,000 people, 12 places of worship, uh, I'm walking down the street on a Sunday was like strolling into Nini's tomb. Uh, it couldn't have been um, emptier. Anyway, so there was that, and all sorts of other things happened. But that was the reason. This was the one book I wanted to write, and I've got a lot better, so <laughs> I might even write another book. <laughs> it's a fantastic book, it really is. You. Will you tell us about the town, then? Okay. Well, the town's in the northwest of Cumbria, just on the edge of the Lake District, called Wigton. An ancient market town, 13th century. It has two factories now. One is a factory that makes rayophane paper. You used to put round cigarette packets. And uh, it's very good at that. And it also makes the notes, 10 pound notes, and they're made in Wigton. So it's a place to rob, really. Uh, <laughs> and it employed about 1,000 people, so men from Wigton and the villages around. My dad worked there for a while. So that was for the men. And then there was a factory for the women. They made clothes. And my mother worked there making buttonholes until she got married, and then, as the custom was, she got fired. So she started cleaning people's houses. So that was them. My dad came back from the war, went down to the factory for a bit, and then took on a pub, which was... Nobody else would take it on. It was called the Blackamoor. You couldn't call it that nowadays, could you? <laughs> anyway, it was the Blackamoor, and um, pub, it was the 15, 15 pubs in the town at that time. Some took a couple of little pot houses, which was straight out of Thomas Hardy. And pub life was very important and rich. And he turned it round. He was a very clever man, one of nine children. His father was one of 16 children. Uh, he passed a scholarship to a Liverpool um, public school, and he couldn't go, of course, because he couldn't afford it. Similarly with the local grammar school, couldn't go, couldn't afford it. So he took this pub on, and it became the dog's pub. We have something in common. It'll take me a whole talk to hound trailing, when the hounds go round the fells, for something between 30 and 35 minutes, he's specially bred. And they're, they're crossed between foxhounds and greyhounds. And it's fantastic to see them racing there. It's a very, very local sport. Cumberland, North Lancashire, a little bit in, in, in the east. But men have... Or it's just like having... It is having a dog, so it isn't very expensive. But our pub was the place where it was centred because Dad organised a bus. Most of the men couldn't get to the trails some distance away. So there was always a bus laid on for a trail. And he, he took the money and sometimes broke even. And if, if he got, made a profit, he put it in a pot for, for the next time. So dogs and dogs were around our pub. And it, it was extraordinary. The Tom Bonham of it was, well, being on my own, because I was an only child, 
always out on the streets whenever I could. If I was reading a book, my mother would say, what are you doing inside on a day like this? Um, so it was round and round that tiny town which still had its medieval centre. And you can't, could truly know everybody. And I used to, I can still get to sleep by naming the shops up all the streets. True. And who had them, and who went to them. I used to shop a lot from, well, shop, go up the street to get something for my mother. We used to tend to shop for the, for the meal often. And then as soon as I came back, she'd say the same thing. Who did you see up the street? So I'd tell her. And the street was the theatre. People in Wickton talked about Wickton. They talked about who, you know, who was in, who was out, who was dying, who was not, who was paying pain. But again, it wasn't miserable. It was a buoyant town. It was, I ain't quite sure of itself. It had a wonderful rugby club, a good football club a good swimming club, a massive following for the pigeon men who used the vaults pump, sent their pigeons to France and then back they came and they clocked in at the vaults and so on. It was something. It was a place. And when I looked in, later in the record books, a lot of the families that I knew, they'd been there since the 16th century. Quite enough had been there. The same names were there. And I loved the little back alleys. Of course, they, they, <laughs> they were a bit too soon for... We were a bit too quick off the mark for um, heritage, really. Before heritage became something important, they cleared all the medieval centre and turned it into a car park. <laughs> so that's our heritage now. And about nine streets were streetlets or nine. Well, it was lovely. And we had a big, big cattle market. They'd drive the cattle through the streets down to the station every Tuesday. We had a pig market. Uh, we had a proper market. People came to the market hall from all over to sell stuff. All the patter that they gave you, that was good. Choirs, good choirs. Sixty good strong choir. How could they have a sixty strong choir in just one of the churches? But they did. Uh, run by a wonderful choir master. Used to be an electrician. His father played the organ. There's lots more to say because it just opened up. People remember certain things and I remember that thing. That place, that thing. Because I just ran around it and ran around. And then we went in the pub, of course, and that made it a popular pub with the singing room the dance room and the bar for men only and the kitchen which we used as a kitchen and then in the evening it became the posh place to eat and different people in the town not just working class people some one or two very rich people the solicitors and the school teachers and that sort of thing uh, and the eccentrics and the men on the dole and there are a few well characters who um, were well accustomed to the to lodging in durham jail for a few months here and there and there were fights on Saturday nights sometimes. My dad barred over 40 people in his first uh, couple of years, stopped them coming into the pub. That was hard for him to do. They were tough buggers, some of them. So there's all that going on, and I, I noticed it all, and I was intoxicated by it. I suppose I was intoxicated. It seeped into me. It was my stage, like everybody else's stage. So there was that. And looking back on it, two things I'd say. The first is that... I can't believe, looking back at it, I cannot believe that people who were working so hard in factories, on the land, in small business, had the time left over to be so good at so many other things which mattered to them. They bred dogs, for instance. They didn't just breed dogs. We had two winners of crufts for a time like that. Not bad, is it? They looked after youth clubs. Men came back from the war determined to make their children or other people's children help them. So we had the AYPA with the Catholics at a club. The Catholics, we went for dances. AYPA went for quizzes. Methodists at a club. And we went for ping pong. And it was saturated in good intentions 
which often led to good results. And finally, there was one more thing. The greatest revolution that's ever happened by men and women in the world, as I think from when fish turned into people, which was 360 million years ago, that was probably the greatest revolution. I just know about that because I'm doing it on Thursday morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm recording it on Thursday about the following thing. Absolutely fascinating, actually. <laughs> we all used to be fish. We did. <laughs> Dust first, then fish. It's not a great lineage, is it? <laughs> that's, that's what it is. <laughs> anyway, um, I'd like to be an octopus. I'd be an octopus, wouldn't you? <laughs> that bright. Anyway, the thing is that the Russian Revolution is quite important, but and the French Revolution, but the greatest revolution that human beings have made is the Industrial Revolution. It totally changed the structure, the mechanism, and the possibilities of the world in every way, and it still goes on. And that began in the north of England and in the, and just north of the border. That began there, and it was driven by mainly ordinary people, same working classes, aren't any, by people who just came up and invented things and made things and could do things and these machines came in and they lasted for you. These machines like steam engines and all that sort of thing. And there was a residue of that still. The people in the town, they could do anything. There were men who could, and women I, I suppose, I don't know as much about that, and women could cook up a meal from next to nothing, but that's neither here nor there. And that, we were aware of that as well, I think. And then we had a brilliant set of teachers, but we might come on to that. I've, go, I've gone on a bit. I'm, I'm obviously... Well, I, what I would really like is for you to tell us about the secret uh, about your grandmother, Mrs. Gilbertson, who oh, yeah. wasn't. Well, I, yeah, the, the centre of the book is that I didn't know for a long for a while that, that my mother was, um, was illegitimate. She was what they used to calmly call a bastard. And if anybody's read Catherine Cookson, she's uh, a good popular writer, uh, it was a terrible stigma. And as custom would have it at the time, in this place of 12 places of worship, her mother was sent into Scotland. She left the town and the child left the town. So she left the town, went into Scotland. I saw very much just a bit now and then. So did my mother. My mother was fostered with a woman called Mrs. Gilbertson who fostered other children and had her own family. So the house was rather crowded. The house was very crowded. But I was surrounded by people who were supposed to be, none of whom was my relation, but I was instructed by my mother that that was my grandmother, that was my uncle, that was my cousin, none of them were, that was my cousin. Now, I think that seeped into me in some way. And my mother dealt with her illegitimacy, well, I don't want to rush through this, brilliantly. She was a lovely-looking woman, there's a photo in the back of the book, she's a beautiful-looking woman. She refused to take, <laughs> um, um, what she called, scholarship, Mr Scott teacher at the school, who also taught me later on, said she could, but she, she just didn't want to go. She took it, failed it, because she wanted to go with the rest of the girls, which went to the factory. She felt safe there, obviously, or happy, or who knows. Anyway, she, um, she could have been shy, she could have been chippy, she could have done all sorts of things, but she just went for it in a very, very quiet way. She was in everything, dancing club. She, uh, organised at the carnival, the Morris dancers. They're not Ecky Thump Morris dancers. These were girls aged about 11 or 12 doing a dance which went back to the time of Henry VIII. She, one thing after another, and she was in it, and Ethel will do this, and Ethel will do that. So, so she was a great example of getting out and doing things. And she did jobs like cleaning houses, and, and she handed on another tradition. 
knocked a bit off the rent to clean the, the lavatory, which was at the bottom of my yard in Station Road, this big house. And then when, when I stayed all at school and my dad... That was a complicated business, but he gave me a job. One of the things, a lot of jobs. I had about three-quarters of an hour's work to do every morning. One of them was swilling out the gents, which was not a pleasant way to start the day, but you got used to it. And she was somebody. She... She, <laughs> she was terrific at cutting me off at the knees as well. She obviously didn't believe I should ever get above myself. And I think that was a scar. I remember once at her 90th birthday, I gave a party for her. A lovely little ledge of a house built by a northern industrialist and the house looked over Derwent Water and the guy had cut down the trees to a house over there in which his mistress lived. It's very romantic. And the house is still there, so there's about a few of us there, about 20 or 30, having luncheon. And I decided to talk about my mother. So I stood up with a bit of paper and I said, I'd like to say something about my mother. And I could just... And I just caught her eye. And I thought, this is really, really a bad idea. <laughs> uh, she doesn't like compliments. She doesn't like, oh, this is such a bad idea. But I sort of ploughed on. <laughs> and then she was talking with her friend, Jean Morrison. She seemed to talk to Jean Morrison all her life. Anyway, she, <laughs> this clear, lovely voice came and rang across the lake, I thought. <laughs> she said, I always wanted a girl. <laughs> She did. You won't be surprised to learn that I sat down quickly. <laughs> she was wonderful. She didn't want me to leave Wickton. She didn't make a big thing of it, but she didn't. I, I, was, I had a proper girlfriend, and I, I, as I tell you, I wanted to get married when I was 17. Anyway, I had a proper girlfriend, and I didn't want to go, but uh, there you go, it turned out the other way around. And she wanted me to stay there. But she didn't stand in the way at the end, no. You talk about her and her attitude to class. You say that she felt equal to all and she brought you up that way. You also say your father had no class envy. And there's a wonderful line. You say, in the town, class beat culture. And yeah. I wonder if you could just unpick that. Well, it, we can't get away from the fact that well, there was a lot of class. A class beat culture generally, but I think it was more important to some people what sort of class they belonged to. Fine, it was like slicing ham, you know? <laughs> that much difference between that and that. But people had their own houses, for instance, and, and genteel jobs. And I don't remember any looking up and looking down. It was what was more important. And I, I use the word important than, uh, than more vital or anything. But it was such a small town, you had... I mean, in the bowling club, my dad was a good bowler. You mixed in with everybody. All the, the men would be a lot of bowlers and that sort of thing, so... It was there, but... And it mattered to some people. And that's why I put it in, that sentence in. I, I think I contextualise it maybe a bit more than that. But I don't think we felt it at all, not very much. I remember talking to David Hockney once about class, and he said... And I felt this too, he said... And he came from a very working-class house. He said, we always thought we were first class. <laughs> <laughs> and there was something about that with us. And we didn't have things that nowadays seem so... Come on, we had lino, not carpets. We didn't have a washing machine. We didn't have a telephone. We didn't have a this machine. We didn't have that machine. We didn't have electricity. We had gas downstairs and candles upstairs. It didn't matter. Well, I can't remember thinking that that mattered at all. Not in the slightest. People came to our house and... If the town was segregated at all, it would be by class, not culture. 
because the culture we all took part in. I mean, the choirs, we won prizes with the choirs. That was working man, and the Catholic, Roman Catholic choir was a very good choir, and they were all, it was a men's choir, and they were very good. So there was that, football, of course, you played if you were any good. Rugby, you played if you were any good. So it cut, a, cut, cut across uh, class in that sense. You were a choir boy. Yeah, I was, from the age of six. And there was a, an incident where you were showing a stranger around the church and you were. Oh, revealed... that was awful, yeah. Yeah, two awful things. One awful thing was, because I was the youngest choir boy, I don't know any of you know, at the Anglican church, there was a, there's a service called the Nine Lessons, and the Nine Carols and the Nine Lessons. Well, the youngest choir boy has to read the first lesson, and it was me. And I just, all I remember, I remember two things. One is that there was this sentence, and the serpent beguiled her, and she did eat. I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> and, uh, and the serpent beguiled her, she... And the other one, <laughs> so I had to stand on a box to see the lectern with the eagle on which the Bible was laid, and I suddenly saw these people and had a sort of... Well, the first of, alas, too many out-of-body experiences. I didn't know what this sway of people, the two things, but the... It was a good choir. And the other thing was, yes, there was a... I uh, took this, this chap said, I, where is there a church? And it's in the book, and it, I, I find it painful to remember it. And, I'm, and it's like, I said, I'm a choir. Oh, would you put your choir, what's it called? That's the cassock and the surplus on. So I bid it and did, because he was a grown-up, and it looked very nice. And then something hit me, and I just found a way to get out of those clothes and ran away quite rightly, because he was, uh, he had a dark purpose, and um, I got out of his grip. <laughs> the follow-up to that was told to me by the barber, Ronnie, who was, uh, had polio, was a miracle barber, and since he had railings all around the, the shop so that he could hold on to them while he was cutting people's hair, just as well, really. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, um, and I run back home and babbled something out, and my dad came out Saturday morning, and Dad came out hunting for him in the town. The town often settled disputes personally, often, and somehow found him in Ronnie's barbershop, and Ronnie described what had happened. And Dad went and said, it was you, wasn't it? And ripped the thing off him and said, if you're not out of this town, I won't answer for what I do and get out. So this chap is reported to run down the street and jumped on the first bus, which might have taken him to Carlisle, who knows? And um, that was the end of that. It, but it stuck with me, and I was frightened. There you go. You get, you, I suppose you get through it. But you're right to bring it up. It was a, one of the points in an... Yeah. But the main point in my life at that age was robbing orchards. That's another funny thing. We had a gang. We robbed orchards. We were pretty good at it. But this strange thing, looking back on it, is that we were honest boys. We really were. We didn't think stopping robbing orchards was stealing. Now, how did we manage to square that? We were pinching people's fruit and apples, but we didn't think it was pinching. I can't get, quite get over why, how we squared that circle. Ended quite interestingly. Oh, it's too, too long a story, but it came to an end. <laughs> yes. In a lovely way, and you'll read about it, because it is... I keep repeating myself, but I can't recommend this book more highly. It's, it's just stories like that with, with the a kind of redemptive ending, actually. You're talking about your group of friends, and you say they were so close you could lose yourself in them. Yes, and I kept them all my life, and they're dead now. William and Eric and David, they're gone. They were my best friends from the age of four or five until... Most of them until the last year or two. 
Mm. And when went back to Wicknell and saw them, they came to London and stayed with me. Yes. And the next clique of friends I had were the people I first met when I went to Oxford, four or five of them. And those are my two basic friends groups. But the Wicknell, yes, we... You know, we, we breathed each other's lives, really. We tried to make caves in the sand pit beside the river. We succeeded, actually. <laughs> we hadn't realised that he could have collapsed and suffocated all of us, but somehow that never occurred to us, just like it never occurred to us who we were stealing apples. Um, so we were a bit dumb. It was a very free and yet surveyed life. I went out, my mother and, and father never never gave a second thought to what was happening to me. I suppose the, the man taking me into the vestry was an example of the system failing, because they knew that somebody around the place would know that I was Stan's lad or Ethel's lad, and if I was straying in some way, it would get back to them in double-quick time, just like with no telephone, obviously, but people were sending messages to each other all the time. Can you pass them a message? You're going upset, you might say, give her a message. And I don't what she's going on. She'll give you a message. So a little messages gave me. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I think that there's quite a short book for what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's only 400 pages. I mean, and it could go on because that is a part of this country's life that I'm very proud of, to have been part of. Well, who am I to be proud or not proud? It's, it is something that happened. We reset ourselves and it was very difficult and we'd had a hell of a hammering, and the irony and the unfairness of the hammering, we'd hammering because in both times we'd won. <laughs> you usually get hammered if you lose, don't you? And done good things, and fought good battles. Some battles we fought, these were. And reset, because we had this medieval centre, and then quite soon after the war, there was a circle of council houses, went up, which had an indoor bathroom. None of us had. We didn't have either of the houses. It had... Um, Three bedrooms, unheard of. A garden front and back, unheard of. So there's a ring of council houses. I just mention it, I don't make a big... And then outside that was a ring of houses. Private houses started to be built. The doctor, Dr Dolan, instead of living above his surgery, they built a house on West Road. Mr Ritson built a house on the West Road. Rather. And so it went on. So that changed as well. It didn't seem to change the centre of the town in my time. And it was the most wonderful playground when it was dark, because of no cars. And uh, you bolt up and down these little side streets, side alleys, little yards. You could climb over walls and go through the pig auction because it would be empty and the main auction because that would just be a few cattle around so you could avoid them. Well, cows can get very nasty. <laughs> and uh, no, no. It was a sort of, wasn't paradise. There were bad people there. There were little meannesses there. There's a place in our history, I just thought, I want to do this so that it's recorded. I mean, most of the things that we keep reading, it's wonderful reading fiction and so on, but the record, the records, when you go back to Bede, it's records, the records. And I thought, I'm going to write a record. And this is a record of a time that I'm sure other people have written about, and they have documented it, but not written about it in this personal way. I just want to say, this was us. This was us then. Back in the Day, a memoir by Melvin Bragg is published by Hachette. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, recorded in front of a live audience. Thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Tamsin Howard, and all at the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. 
You can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>